Good and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I am your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it is the morning of Friday, the 9th of September 2022 in Seoul, which in North Korea is the National Foundation Day, and in Great Britain it is the first day of mourning for the loss of uh, Queen Elizabeth II, who passed away uh, while I was asleep last night. Uh, and I'm joined here via Zoom by Christine Ann in Hawaii and Colin Moore in Washington, D.C., from the organization Women Cross DMZ, uh, or DMZ, as I like to say it. Now, before we get started, I'd like to remind all of you, please, to leave a review about this podcast wherever you can. Spotify uh, allows ratings, but not reviews. Audible allows reviews. Apple Podcasts allows both. And you can like and subscribe our episode um, on YouTube. Secondly, check us out at nknews.org and consider buying a subscription. Thirdly, you can follow me on Twitter at JackoZ and NKNews. You can follow at NKNews.org. For podcast suggestions and feedback, you can tweet at us or email at podcast at NKNews.org. So my guests today are Christine Ahn, the Executive Director of Women Cross DMZ and Coordinator for Career Peace Now, and Colleen Moore, the Advocacy Director of Women Cross DMZ. And you can find Christine Ahn on Twitter at Christine Ahn, one word. We'll put a link in the show notes and Colin Moore at the slightly more difficult and hard to pronounce CMO011 and underbar and Women Cross DMZ. You can find at Women Cross DMZ, all one word, and Career Peace Now is at Career Peace Now. So that's lots of Twitter accounts to check out. Uh, welcome on the show, ladies. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks Thank for having So let's start with the, uh, the simple stuff first. What is the goal of Women Cross DMZ? Yes, yeah, so the goal of Women Cross DMZ, we are working for the U.S. to remove barriers and begin the process to normalize relations with the DPRK. Um, so that really translates into trying to work for a peace agreement between the U.S. and North Korea, as the Korean War has never formally ended. Right. Does it? Uh, does your organization have a separate mission statement that uh, summarizes all that in a in a pithy way? Yeah, I mean, I can talk a little bit, um, I'm not sure about a pithy way, but um, as far as what we do, it, it's really divided into three main buckets of education, advocacy, and organizing. So we're educating millions worldwide on the urgent need for peace in Korea, as well as the women's leadership in the peace process. Advocacy, which is really my lane. Uh, you know, we're meeting with senior officials from the U.S., South Korea, North Korea, especially before the pandemic during the Trump administration, as well as doing congressional work calling for an end to the Korean War. And then finally, organizing. We're mobilizing people specifically in the U.S., but also across borders uh, to press for peace, diplomacy and women's inclusion and peace building. We've built up a grassroots network to advocate for peace in Korea. We had our most recent advocacy week. They had almost 200 attendees from 24 states in the U.S. and in every region of the country. So those are the kind of the, the three buckets that sum up how we're doing this. Okay, thank you. And what are the, uh, the values and the worldview that underpin your goal and mission? Yeah, so Women Cross DMZ, we really see ourselves as intersectional feminist, as anti-militarist, anti-racist, and inclusive and diverse. So we're seeking to eliminate hierarchies between people, elevate the voices of those most vulnerable. Uh, we really want everyone to live in a world free from harm, threats of violence, and war. 
And we believe that militarism and war rob governments of the ability to provide housing, healthcare, so many other basic needs. Um, and that patriarchal white supremacy is perpetuated through settler colonialism and a military first foreign policy. So we, we do really see our work as part of this broader intersectional cross movement effort to dismantle white supremacy. Um, and we also believe that our movement is much stronger when we come from diverse backgrounds. So we actively welcome diverse voices and especially those that have been historically marginalized or disenfranchised and especially those that have been impacted by militarism. Okay, and could you both briefly tell us your backgrounds and how you both got involved as well as what your different roles are? Sure, I can start. Um, I'm assuming, Jacko, you mean how we both got involved in the Korea peace work. Yes, yes. And and just for our listeners there, that's Christine talking now. I'm, I'm aware that since we're doing a podcast, people are going to have to audibly be able to tell your voices apart from each other. I'm just giving, okay. a, giving a little help there. Well, I, you know, surprisingly, I was born in Seoul and I uh, immigrated to the U.S. And like many immigrants, spent most of my life kind of not knowing my own history and my relationship to the Korean Peninsula until much later. And in fact, you know, starting in college, I became a, an activist. I traveled to many parts of the global south to learn about um, issues of migration and globalization and war and militarism. And it really wasn't until I was in my late 20s as a graduate student at Georgetown, and I took a course at the School of Foreign Service where Bob Gallucci, who was senior official in the Clinton administration, who helped negotiate the agreed framework, mm. came and gave a talk in this international comparative politics course um, and told the, the story of how the Clinton administration almost went to war with North Korea. Yeah. And that, you know, I mean, obviously your listeners know the, the story of how Jimmy Carter co-opted that and flew with the CNN camera crew to Pyongyang to meet with Kim Il-sung. Mm. And it was just uh, a riveting story. And I decided to write a paper that semester for that course about the role of NGOs supporting North Korea during the famine. And in that process, I came across an interview with Peter Hayes, who had just won the MacArthur Genius Award. He was the founder and executive director of the Nautilus Institute. Who, you know, they have done such great work on North Korea. Yeah. But uh, what I found so fascinating about Peter's analysis was that the famine in North Korea was actually an energy crisis. And that, you know, he did that really interesting, uh, rather quixotic project of building windmills because he saw what a mountainous country North Korea was mm. and the tremendous wind power that it could generate. And it was a great idea, except, you know, they don't have the resources or the technology to continue to sustain it. But he was, it was so fascinating and I just felt I wanted to learn more. So I reached out to the Nautilus Institute and fortunately with a Ford Foundation Fellowship, I was able to go and work with the Nautilus Institute after leaving Georgetown. And that's where I, they were based in Berkeley and I met um, several Korean Americans, multi-generational, many who had actually gone to North Korea, had been involved actually in pro-democracy movements in South Korea. 
So I, I learned um, more deeply about um, the issues of the Korean Peninsula through the various people that um, had actually been on the front lines of fighting for democracy in South Korea, for being a part of reunification efforts. And so that's basically how I got involved and I haven't looked back. Right. Well, thank you. And, and Colleen? Yeah, so I met Christine and other women cross DMZ staff in Washington, D.C. in 2018, I believe. It was the launch of Korea Peace Now, the international campaign. And it was, I just remember it was this women-dominated space calling for peace in Korea. And it was just such a rare space to see in DC, this you know women-dominated space. And I, I was working at a nuclear disarmament organization, Global Zero, at the time. I had just come fresh off of grad school, studying conflict resolution, and it, it honestly just really changed my life to learn more about this movement. So I, I kept in contact, and I ended up going to the DMZ with Christine on the one year anniversary of the Panmun Jom declaration in April of 2019. And it was mm. a hand in hand action by the South Koreans calling for peace. And so I, before the crossing, the DMZ crossing in 2015, which I think we'll probably talk about later, sure. I didn't know about this movement. I didn't really think of North Korea as, um, you know, I didn't know that the Korean war hadn't formally ended. I didn't really see it as you know, as a root cause, the, la the lack of the ending of the war as really a root cause of the security tensions that we see on the peninsula. And it was really following the movement since 2015. I was always a fangirl of Christine and the rest of the women who traveled um, for so many years. And so it was really great to meet Christine and start to work with her because it, it did truly change my life going to the DMZ and seeing firsthand the division of Korea and, uh, you know, I, I haven't looked back either. And Christine really kept me in the movement. And then I, I joined the, the staff as advocacy coordinator last year. So really handling the legislative portfolio and advocating for peace in Korea in the U.S. Congress now. So, yeah, haven't looked back since she brought me into the movement. Yeah, tell us more about the, uh, the role and the importance of, of advocacy uh, directly to the the government in Washington, D.C., and what, what's been able to be achieved so far? Yeah, so a few years ago in 2019, we helped to introduce the first congressional resolution calling for an end to the Korean War. That was HRES 152, which was introduced by Representative Ro Khanna, and it, it ended up with 52 co-sponsors in the last Congress. And really following the success of that, this current Congress, we have worked with Representative Brad Sherman to introduce House Bill uh, H.R. 3446, the Peace on the Korean Peninsula Act, which is a bit more robust than the previous House resolution. It calls for urgent diplomacy in support of a binding peace agreement to end the Korean War, as well as negotiations to establish liaison offices in Washington and Pyongyang, and a review of the travel restrictions on Americans traveling to North Korea. And we're at over 40 co-sponsors right now. So this has really been our main legislative vehicle for engaging with Congress on Korea peace in order to continue to change the political landscape and build the political space for a peace-first pro-diplomacy policy toward North Korea. And 
what we're really aiming for is to simply have this issue on the political agenda. Without us and a lot of our partners in DC, this issue wouldn't even really be in the mix. We are still creating this massive paradigm shift. I, I always use the example of, you know, 10 years ago, there were only two members of Congress. That's Barbara Lee and Dennis Kucinich who would speak on this issue. And now we have more than 50 who support this issue. We've come such a long way. And we have congressional leaders from across the political spectrum with us. We have progressive Democrats. We have a Republican on board. We have more moderate national security Democrats. So we're really targeting Congress as representatives of the American people who are standing up and saying that we need a different approach. It's really about building the political will of Congress to call on the administration to pursue a peace first approach and address this root cause. And we've done hard things in the past, you know, no matter the party in power and we will continue to do the same. And I know Christine can talk a little bit more about, you know, work under the Trump administration as well. Yeah, now, if that House uh, resolution that you mentioned, if that's passed, that by itself won't actually end the Korean War, will it? How, how will that work? Yes, that's correct. So the House bill, how, how it's written now, it expresses the sense of Congress of, you know, that we should pursue urgent diplomacy and, and all of the other parts. But yeah, it would not formally end the war on its own. That's up to the administration, but it is really trying to put pressure on the administration to change right. their approach. It's it's really about what the American people are speaking up about and as representatives of the American people, what Congress can do. Is the US government not currently seeking diplomacy with North Korea? From our perspective, I mean, they have said time and time again, especially his uh, North Korea envoy, Sung Kim, you know, the, the table is open, we're, we're open to talks with no preconditions, but they haven't actually backed that up with anything that they're willing to put on the table. Um, they did in their North Korea policy review last year say that they are committed to honoring the Singapore agreement where they did agree to work toward a stable peace regime on the Korean Peninsula. But unfortunately, we haven't really seen that commitment honored in practice. I mean, they are ramping up military exercises, they're continuing sanctions, and we really do see just a lack of authentic engagement from the Biden administration on getting back to the table, because a lot of what they're doing is a non-starter for North Korea and getting back to the table. What do you do if North Korea itself doesn't want to talk? Yeah, I think it's, again, from our perspective as an American organization, it's about what we can call on our own government to do. But I, I will say that repeatedly North Korea has said that they want security guarantees in order to talk about dismantling their nuclear weapons program. So I think yeah. it is yeah, what the U.S. government really can do to proactively change their approach and put peace first, because they, they have always insisted on this denuclearization per, denuclearization approach first, and then, you know, let's talk about peace later. And that's that's been a non-starter. Negotiations have collapsed time and time again, because it always comes back to that root cause of, you know, not addressing the lack of the ending, unending Korean War. Yes, I was at a, a conference last week at which somebody um, showed quite graphically how uh, since the time of President George H.W. Bush, the United States, either through the president or the State Department or through the National Security Advisor, has uh, expressed no less than 76 uh, expressions of non-aggression uh, against North Korea. 
does that count for something or is, is that something that we can uh, dismiss as North Korea often does? Uh, Jocko, are you referring to just like statements that U.S. officials have said that they have committed to a a, a, a nuclear first that they, they wouldn't engage in a nuclear first strike against them? What what concretely are you referring to? Yes, it's a very good question, because I only saw a, a summary form in a graph there, but I believe it was expressed quite broadly as in the United States does not have an aggressive intent toward North Korea. So it wasn't as narrow as, as what you're saying there, that uh, the United States will not engage in a first strike nuclear uh, attack on North Korea, but much more broadly that the United States does not have a, an aggressive intent toward North Korea. Well, I think that we know that the Korean War only ended with a ceasefire, which yes. is basically that is what it is. It's a ceasefire. And so the state of war continues to languish on on the Korean Peninsula. And given that the signatories to the armistice include North Korea and the United States, that they still have a um, a lot of political settlement to resolve. And so I think we saw in the last administration, unfortunately, not the most ideal president to be doing this negotiation, given his legacy here at home. But I think we can see what actually engaging in um, proactive talks towards a formal settlement of the war could actually yield. And, you know, I think that's the important work that we at Women Cross CMC did during the Trump administration. I'm happy to share a few stories of, I know that that was um, something you wanted to, to, to discuss with us about um, our engagement with the Trump administration, because here we are, a group of pretty progressive internationalist feminists engaging with the Trump administration. And, yeah. you know, ultimately, we you end wars by talking. You don't end wars by continuing to sit apart without trying to understand the other side. And so um, during the Trump administration, you, as we know, the administration began with a very bellicose approach towards North Korea. We saw Trump calling for fire and fury uh, that he would totally destroy North Korea at the UN General Assembly. And so it was very terrifying times, I think, obviously, especially for those people living on the peninsula. But for those of us, you know, that have families on the Korean peninsula. And so our engagement with the Trump administration began, I would say, of uh, spring of 2017. Mm -hmm. And we sent a letter to the National Security Council advisor for Asia, Matthew Pottinger. He had just been appointed, uh, I believe, early that year. And so we, we basically, do you remember the meeting that Trump convened with 100 senators to the White House? Basically, I think, you know, prepping them that because uh, at the same time, um, some nuclear U.S. nuclear warships were headed to the Korean Peninsula. Um, there were a lot of signs that there were there was going to be some kind of provocation. And so we quickly organized and got a letter signed by women from 45 countries, including North Korea and South Korea, to the Trump administration, urging him to do what no president has done, which is 
formally end the longest standing U.S. conflict. And so that began an opportunity to engage with Matthew Pottinger. And so later that year, um, I organized a group of civil society representatives. Uh, it included Rick Downs, who is um, the head of the um, Korean War, Cold War, POW, MIA families, the coalition mm -hmm. of, of those families, representative of Korean American divided families, humanitarian aid organizations. And we traveled and we, we met with Pottinger at the White House. And, you know, I think that planted some seeds, um, but I think that's why it's so important to um, be engaging with even a <laughs> really conservative hawkish administration. And that's what we have to continue to do as a society. And so the story about Began, which- Yes, um, how was that meeting with Steve Began, who of course we had I, I uh, on know. the podcast? It's actually, I mean, that's what I love about podcasts is you can really tell some great stories. So um, you know that Stephen Began first gave his kind of big speech at Stanford in yes. 2019 in February. And uh, our communications director, Kathleen Richards, lives in Berkeley. And she said, oh, he's giving a talk. Should I go? And I was like, oh, absolutely. You should go. So she went. And uh, after his speech, I guess he gave a very short window to journalists. And then mm -hmm. so he answered a few. And then he said, that's it. And um, people are obviously harassing him. And he was like, no, 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 I already answered all my questions. And so we start to walk away. And so Kathleen, uh, who actually happened to be a former journalist before I convinced her to come and work at Women Cross CMZ to do our communications work, um, approached him and said, uh, Mr. Began, I'm not a journalist, uh, although she was in her previous life. And uh, she said, I, I represent Women Cross CMZ. We're a global movement of women. We're trying to mobilize for peace in Korea. We organized the historic 2015 crossing. He was interested. And uh, so he said, well, why don't you walk me to the car? Mm -hmm. And then she proceeded to tell him about us. And then he gave her his business card. Right. And so she texted that to me and I said, oh my God, how fabulous. So then we, I guess it was that March, he went to the U.S. mission to the U.N. to give a debrief about the state of, of talks. And so we went there. It was after to, uh, Hanoi, I think, wasn't it? It was after Hanoi. Yeah. And so we went there and we stood outside and then finally he pulled up in his car and uh, Kathleen first got to him and then all the security detail pulled her way. Yeah. And then I kind of jumped in and I happened to have our DMZ peace scarf. I don't know if you've seen those, Jacko. It's the scarf that we wore as we crossed the DMZ. On the I website, had one yes. of those. Yes. And I have the, I had our annual report and I just jumped in and I said, Mr. Began, Christine on with Women Cross DMZ, you have to negotiate a peace agreement and invite women to the table. And then before I knew it, I was just yanked away by the security yeah. detail. But anyway, it was a hilarious moment because I think maybe one or two months after that, one of our advisors, her name is Cora Weiss. She's in her 80s. She was a prominent anti-war activist during the Vietnam War, really legendary peace activist. She attended a talk at the Council on Foreign Relations that Began gave. Mm. And afterwards, she approached him and she said, Mr. Began, Cora Weiss, I'm an advisor to Women Cross CMC. And you, his response was, oh my gosh, 
like basically he, he felt like we were like you know trolling him and yeah. like harassing him and he said oh, i know i know all about uh women cross dmt and christine on and she said you must meet with the women and so right after that i emailed his i emailed him again and yeah. his secretary responded and so we had our first meeting with him in washington dc soon after and that began a correspondence between us and mr Beacon. And I still say that he what is one of the most decent diplomats. I think he tried his hardest. I think he faced a very difficult time where there was obviously a huge dissent within the administration about what was the right approach. I still think his speech at Stanford was one of the one of the best that any U.S. official has ever delivered. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, I you know nobody compares to what Bill Perry has done for the peace process. And, you, you know, yeah. yeah. So that's our little vegan story. Uh, now, you're um, I just want to uh, clarify something for our listeners there. You're also involved with another group called Women Cross TMZ and uh, sorry, another group called Career Peace. Now, I'm just wondering the two groups, what's the overlap and what's the distinction between Women Cross TMZ and Career Peace Now? OK, I know it's complicated, but not so much. In, gosh, I think it was in 2018, we applied with three other feminist peace organizations. One is a coalition of South Korean women's groups called the Korean Women's Movement for Peace. And they include longstanding women's peace organizations like YWCA and Women Making Peace and the Korean Women's Association United. Yayan, which is an umbrella group of women's organizations in South Korea, and the Korean Women's Alliance. And so that was one partner. The other one was the Nobel Women's Initiative. And the third was WILP, the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. And so we decided, okay, there are historic talks happening. This is a moment to really support Korea peace and ensure women's leadership in the peace process. And so we applied for a grant that uh, was a global competition that was um, held by the Novo Foundation, which is the uh, Jennifer Buffett, the um, daughter-in-law of Warren Buffett. And we were among, I think it was 17 selected recipients of that award, that global competition. And it enabled us to launch the Korea Peace Now campaign. And so, it still is in effect, obviously, since the stalemate we haven't in the pandemic, we haven't been as active as we were. But um, as part of that, we kind of developed different lanes. And in our joint analysis, we all agreed that one of the largest obstacles to a peace agreement or to advancing peace or normalizing relations with the DPRK was the United States and that we needed to build the political will in the U.S to pressure whichever administration is in office to negotiate a peace settlement. And so that's through that, we started the Korea Peace Now Grassroots Network. And we currently have about 13 chapters across the country in key cities with large populations of Korean Americans. But, you know, it's a very diverse, multi-generational, you know, movement and housewives and students and professors and veterans and peace activists, business owners. Um, and so through that, that's the grassroots movement that works kind of in close coordination with our advocacy team led by Colleen 
to try to press for the political will for there to be a peace agreement. And so that's obviously the success of some of the work that we've been doing on HR 3446 is because we've been mobilizing a grassroots base to put pressure on Congress. Could you think of any historical precedents in terms of civil society groups taking actions of this nature to bring about peace or to end a war? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe Christine can talk about like your inspiration for the DMZ crossing, because I, I do think just the importance of this cross-cultural engagement and changing the narrative of, you know, from all sides and the importance of these transnational networks for cooperation. Um, yeah, just as a kind of story that I wanted to share of an example of what what I saw in the Crossings documentary, which uh, we can also talk about, it documented the 2015 crossing that Christine and Women Across DMZ led. Um, but just the example of Anne Wright, who is a former U.S. Army colonel, I believe she was in the Army, um, meeting a North Korean general in, that was portrayed as a scene in this Crossings documentary. And it, it just really shows the importance of these cross-cultural engagements that's really not able to happen because of the travel ban right now and the ban on Americans traveling to North Korea. We can't have that people-to-people -people engagement right now. But yeah, Christine, I don't know if you were inspired by anything in the past to do this crossing. I know there were so many women involved in that crossing that came from conflict zones all over the world. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know if you know, Jacko, the... Um the origins of the idea for the DMC crossing, but oh. I was working, yeah, I was, um, I was working at the Global Fund for Women, which is in the US, probably in the world, the largest women's fund we raise, or they raise annually millions to support women's groups in 178 countries. And um, I was helping to lead an initiative called Women Dismantling Militarism. And we had brought together, um, it was to raise money to support women in conflict zones. And to kind of kick off that initiative, we had invited Abigail Disney, who is from the Disney family and, and a, now a, a prominent Emmy Award win winning documentary filmmaker to screen her film called Pray the Devil Back to Hell, which documented the extraordinary organizing of Liberian women crossing religious lines, Muslim, Christian women um, to forge a peace in Liberia. And so I, we screened that film and I remember going to sleep that night. And then in the middle of the night, I woke up and doing, this is in real life, uh, doing what most of us do when we can't sleep is we turn on the computer. Yeah. And so I, I, I opened the computer and on the homepage of the New York Times, was an article about flooding that was taking place in the Engine River, which as you know, flows through the heart of the Korean Peninsula. And it was a piece by Chae Sang-hoon of the New York Times. And it was about how North Korea allegedly lifted the floodgates. This is, you know, typhoon season. And without consulting South Korea, it was Lee Myung-bak at the time and Kim Jong-il as the as the leader and yeah. the hotline had been cut off. Uh, and so basically North Korea lifted the floodgates and many, many drowned, including a father and a son in the early morning who were fishing. And I just remember reading this story and just thinking how 
devastating and ridiculous is this, that they two men can't pick up the phone and let each other know we have to lift the floodgates or otherwise our farms will flood and we won't be able to continue to feed our people. Um, and so I went back to sleep and that's when I had this dream. And the dream was that I was waiting in the river and I was situated in the South, which I imagine is because I was born in South Korea. That's where my family live. And uh, we were waiting for people to come down the river. And as the at the crack of dawn, as the sun was starting to rise, a glow of light started to come down the river. And it all of a sudden, it that light morphed into this beautiful scene of of families, um, elderly, you know, all the images we've seen of family reunions, just embracing, and it was so moving. But somehow, I don't know if it's because I am from the diaspora that I wanted to continue going up the river, and I did, and that's when I came to the source of the light, which was a circle of women, and they were stirring something in a big black pot and whatever they stirred, they poured into little vessels that then flowed down the river and became the light. And that's when I woke up and I said to my then husband, oh my God, I know who will end the war. Women will end the war. And of course he looked at me like I was absolutely nuts. And I just, I think that was in, God, that must've been in 2009. And I really pondered that question. And, and then soon after I got a fellowship at the University of Michigan, where I was able to do some oral history interviews with South Korean women who have been engaging with North Korean women. You know, as we know, during the Sunshine policy years, there was a lot of inter-Korean engagement. And the first meeting of North and South Korean women took place in 1991. And it was organized actually by a member of the Japanese diet um, who had ties. She was from the Communist Party in Japan and had some ties to North Korean women. And I just thought, wow, in times of impasse, there is a role for international people to play. And that's basically how I set off on this journey. And I don't know if you recall, and I think it was in 2013, a group of five Kiwis rode their motorbikes across the DMZ. And I remember reading that article in Reuters and thinking, that's just brilliant. Um, I think it was during the Pakenhe administration. And, you know, how did they manage to do that? So mm -hmm. I actually reached out to them and asked them, share with me your blueprint for how you did how you did this. Yeah. And and that's how I set off to organize the the 2015 crossing. The uh, a recurring theme here is that uh, the unique role of women and voice for women that you see in making peace. And if you could talk a bit more about that, that would be great. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's pretty well documented now. And especially, you know, with the passage of UN Security Council Resolution 1325 on the role of women and peace and security. It's been well documented now that um, in peace processes, when women and civil society are included, it actually... Um, leads to an agreement and one that lasts, I think, 15 years or more. Um, so that's important precedence. But, you know, I think the role, it's not like if we look at the Korea peace process, women have rarely been involved. In fact, there's probably been more North Korean women, right? We have Madame Chae Son-hee, um, 
But in South Korea, we had Prime Minister um, Kang Kyung-hwa, who was also part of that peace process in 2018 and 19. But I think, you know, you mean? Yes, thank you. And so, you know, it's not really a thing that happens where women are really invited to the peace process. And so I think the case that is more relevant to us and Women Cross TMC is a Georgetown University study that came out, I think, in 2021 that looked at from a period of 30 years, the role that actually women's peace organizations and activists played in through their activism, through their direct action, through their education, their organizing, their advocacy work to create the political will for there to be a peace agreement. And so I think that's the work that we are doing at Women Cross TMZ. And, you know, Joe Serencioni, who used to be the head of the Plowshares Fund, you know, I, I remember distinctly at one of the calls after Pamunjang, he would they would organize these DC advocacy calls with various organizations, nuclear disarmament groups. And I remember, you know, it was after the Pamunjang summit. And I remember asking, you know, this community, which, you know, I viewed as a peace community, pro-peace, pro-diplomacy. Um, okay, so now that the Pamunjam agreement says that we need to have a formal settlement of the Korean War, replace the armistice. Isn't it time for a peace agreement? Should we be advocating for it? And I mean, it was just really interesting to see the kind of like silence on the on the call. And, you know, I think that's when Joe really understood that uh, we need to have peace before we're going to see the denuclearization of, of the Korean Peninsula. And so I think that that has been an important, you know, and that's what he himself has been quoted as saying is women across DMZ has put forth the, the important understanding that to get to denuclearization, we need to get to peace first. And so I think that's the role that uh, we have been playing. And, you know, frankly, I think we're in a, a really innovative model of a civil society group that is, you know, largely a lot of Korean American, um, you know, our constituency, our base is Korean American, and a lot of our leadership is Korean American, is of um, diasporic communities in yeah. the United States that know, that are truth tellers, that know the real history of the Korean War and playing a role to kind of improve democracy and strengthen it and strengthen and change U.S. foreign policy so that we don't have a United States that is perennially and endlessly at war around the world. What are some common ways that people misunderstand women cross DMZ and the work that you do? I think that we are seen as kind of like fringe activists and we we are certainly out of the box like Christine said, we definitely have a very innovative model. We're trying something new. We're a feminist grassroots organization, which is pretty rare in the discourse about North Korea in the US, I think. And so we're not always taken seriously by experts in the North Korea space, but we do have mainstream validators on our side. And I think that's a big misunderstanding about our movement. You know, we have former President Jimmy Carter, we have former Secretary of Defense Bill Perry. Um, veterans organizations, so many that are on our side who support our approach. We 
work with so many think tanks in DC as well that are aligned with us. And I know Christine mentioned us working with Rick Downs with the coalition of POW MIA families. Um, you know, they are very supportive of our approach because they really see their mission and which their mission is recovery missions in North Korea to um, get, you know, the return of remains of U.S. service members. They really see normalizing relations and ending this war um, as a way to further their mission as well. And we did, we were invited by the Korean War Veterans Memorial in D.C. to attend the Wall of Remembrance dedication back in July, on July 27th. And it was so heartening to see so many veterans there that, you know, we were kind of on the side handing out some pamphlets about women cross DMZ and our mission. And there are so many veterans coming up to us that were like, yeah, the Korean War should end. Like, yeah, I fought in this war 70 years ago. Why isn't this war ended? So I think there are so many people, especially mainstream validators who are on our side. We are pursuing these mainstream tactics on advocacy and we have leaders from across the political spectrum with us. And it's really because we are advocating for a sustainable solution that we can't continue to try the same tactics over and over again and, and hope they work. Like we are, I think we are asked a lot about why we don't criticize North Korea more. But as I, I mentioned earlier in the episode, you know, we're an American organization who can influence the U.S. government. We can't mm -hmm. necessarily influence the North Korean government. And we need to acknowledge the U.S. role in the division of Korea and the unending Korean War and, and how they can play a proactive role. So I think we're, we're red baited a lot. We're accused of being pro-communist, pro-North Korea, and we're really just advocating for a new chapter in this book on, on Korean history and trying something new and trying to get away from these failed approaches. I, I want to uh, return to that later on, but you, would you say that you're sympathetic to the government of North Korea? No, I would say we were sympathetic to the North Korean people. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, I mean, even in addition to all the various civil society and former leaders, like, you know, this is you know, we're not the only ones that are calling for a, a peace settlement. I mean, you know, we saw the um, the previous South Korean administration of Moon Jae-in and his whole government, you know, using the full resources of that government to negotiate a, a formal settlement and replacing the armistice, you know. And so I, I think that um, somehow the way that the narrative is shaped in the West and by corporate media and, you know, the kind of North Korea watcher community is, I think, in many ways, like a reflection of the military industrial complex that continues to benefit and profit from this endless war. And it really, it's, it's long overdue, 70 years of a yes. war that has continued to divide the Korean people. I mean, you know, I often get this thing that um, we're so radical. Well, well, what is more radical? Having a militarized zone that divided a peninsula that had no input from Korean people that had been colonized by Japan for 35 years and, and that the United States is banning Americans, it, our constitutional right to travel for humanitarian aid work or for peace work or for elderly Korean Americans to be reunited with their families. I mean, 
you know, I think there's so many ways that the the discourse on the DPRK and our North Korea is so skewed. And we're so far behind where we mm. need to be to have a basic understanding. And I think once people do get educated, um, it, you know, that's been my experience. People have come to see Crossings, which is a new documentary film about our our historic walk. And, you know, it's a true story of um, really difficult activism by, by women's peace groups. And, and let me, let you know, me jump in there because yeah. I want to get to the crossing of, of the demilitarization in 2015. And I'm aware that you have a hard stop because you have to leave it at, uh, at 55 and we're at 41 now, which gives us only 40 minutes left. So I'm, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, just moving yeah. a little bit. Uh, yeah. you, you, you've said that the uh, that this the Korean War is the US, the first US forever war. You just mentioned that it was an endless war. And I wonder whether this is fair, given that all out fighting hasn't taken place on the Korean Peninsula since 1953. And there is this unique armistice structure that exists to keep the peace and has successfully done so for a long time. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, as you mentioned, uh, it was merely suspended by an armistice agreement, and that was never meant to be permanent. You know, in the armistice agreement, it was supposed to be fully resolved with the peace agreement and normalized relations, which did not happen. You know, South Korean dictator at the time, Sigmund Rhee, opposed the peace talks. Um, South Korea didn't end up signing that armistice agreement. But I think even looking at some of the events right after of you know, like I said, the armistice agreement called for negotiations to turn that into a peaceful resolution just a few months after, and it, it failed with the Geneva Conference in 1954 with the U.S. refusing to talk about a Korean peace treaty, and the U.S. also abrogated part of that agreement by deploying nuclear-armed missiles to South Korea, and it's a forever war because, you know, while it no longer consists of active fighting, you see that the hostilities between the two parties have remained high. The, the unresolved state of the war is the root cause of tensions and hostilities between the two parties, and it's resulted in the extreme militarization of the peninsula. So there's no negotiated settlement right now to prevent a resumption of active hostilities. And for decades, multiple administrations have tried to put denuclearization at the beginning of their process to force North Korea to give up its nuclear weapons through pressure, isolation, sanctions, and it's only exacerbated the situation. And North Korea seeks through its development of nuclear weapons, international recognition and economic aid, as, as well as security. So U.S. approaches to denuclearization have to focus on the dismantlement of their nuclear program without a sense of insecurity. So it, it is really unrealistic to think North Korea will dismantle its nuclear weapons. And we see that a, a peace agreement, but even just beyond a piece of paper of working toward a peace regime um, is the most effective, most realistic method for resolving this. I mean, with negotiations between the US and North Korea, you can trace back collapse of negotiations to this unending state of war. I mean, there were a few times during the six party talks under the Bush administration where they were close to reaching some kind of agreement. You know, they had a little bit of a step-by-step -step process outlined. And the first part of it was, you know, the North Koreans would declare uh, what nuclear what weapons they had in their arsenal. And it came back to, you know, we're in a state of war with you guys. You're an enemy state. We can't just simply share with you what is in our nuclear arsenal. So you can really trace this back to this forever war. And we really do see this as the root cause and the extreme militarization of both South Korea and North Korea. And, you know, the U.S. justifying its massive 
military budget as you know one of the its adversaries with North Korea. So we we do really see how it affects geopolitical tensions still to this day. Do you think there are forces or actors that actively want to keep Korea divided, or is this an unintentional byproduct? I think that, you know, a lot of U.S. thinking on North Korea relies on, like, guesswork and, and paranoia, a little bit of, like, what Christine was talking about. Um, the uncertainty and the lack of clear communication channels really makes a, it's a bad, you know, state of play for two nuclear-armed states that are still technically at war. So I we do see this, like I said, unresolved Korean War has only ever allowed mistrust and antagonism between the two countries, which is why we need this new approach. So we do see that U.S. policy has favored isolation and sanctions and military pressure, and it, it is causing undue harm to everyday North Koreans. I mean, especially looking at the impact of sanctions, especially the sectoral sanctions on women-dominated industries in North Korea. Um, and it's, in, you know, the U.S. in the past has impeded inter-Korean reconciliation and cooperation. They've blocked joint Korean economic projects. They've halted an inter-Korean train project. Um, so this absence of a diplomatic relationship has only made us very much ill-equipped to verify a lot of, like, reports that come out of the country. Like, a, there's an example of, you know, everybody in the U.S. talking about the rumors that Kim Jong-un was dead. We, we need to focus on other things. We, we need to attempt to deal with North Korea as they are instead of holding on to this fantasy of who we think they are and that they're going to collapse or surrender. It it's, just continues to be this tit for tat, very dangerous cycle unless we really get out of this. And, and to your question of like, are we sympathetic to the North Korean government? Like, no, absolutely not. But the we in negotiations, you do have to see where they're coming from in order mm. to get toward a solution. You, you, um, you've talked a lot about uh, U.S. policy and, and uh, U.S. stance. And of course, as you point out, you are a, uh, a U.S. based, you know, you're an American organization. So your job is to, uh, uh, to, to pressure the U.S. government. Do you know of any similar groups that would do the same thing on the North Korean side that would uh, criticize the North Korean government from within and pressure the North Korean government to say, let's uh, let's move for peace and let's get those hotlines open and, and let's uh, coordinate on things like opening uh, flood dams and, uh, you know, uh, building trust and that sort of thing. I think that there are, I mean, obviously not the same kind of organizations like Women Cross CMC, but I mean, I've, you would probably know yourself, Jocko, having studied this country very in depth, but you know, there it's not a homogeneous country. You know, there are a diverse variety of views across the spectrum in terms of engagement um, versus a more hawkish, closed approach. And you know, in my experience of um, organizing the DMZ crossing, you know, the person that I was assigned to um, coordinate with um, actually grew up in Africa. And so he spent most of his childhood growing up outside of the DPRK. And so he really got a different kind of worldview than what he might have gotten were he in Pyongyang because his father was a diplomat. And so I, I think that there are lots of people that want to see the opening up of North Korea, that want to see more engagement. But, you know, the country is um, basically a, a garrison state. It is a, a country that is 
trying to protect its sovereignty. And I think until, and that's the argument that, you know, I will take time and time and again is there is not really another path but peace. Um, I've been in forums with defectors um, where, you know, we've debated and discussed and, you know, I will walk through, um, well, so if we don't advocate for peace, then what are the other options on the table? And let's actually think through and talk through what does regime change mean? What would it actually mean? Um, and has it actually ever successfully worked? And I would say no, in terms of yielding a better outcome for the people of those various countries, whether it's Iraq or Af Af Afghanistan or uh, Libya. And so I, I think that we um, have to have a very realistic assessment of what is the right right course um, mm. in, in terms of improving the day-to-day -day, um, conditions of the North Korean people. And so, you know, um, I don't even remember what your question was, Jocko, but... Sure. <laughs> but with, with your emphasis on, on U.S. policy and U.S. moving first, to what degree do you see North Korea and South Korea as having agency in their own fates and choices and shaping their destiny uh, at the well, moment? I, I mean, it's a really big question. And, and I would say that, of course, the two Koreas should have their own agency. My God, you know, North Korea is one of the largest militaries in the world. South Korea is, you know, the 10th largest economy in the world. But I don't think that's necessarily the political, economic or military reality. Like, let's just start with the military reality. South Korea is not sovereign over its military. The U.S. has wartime operational control over South Korea. And that timeline for when that transfer was supposed to take place, it's a moving target. And I think the, the operability, what are the conditions that um, make it so that South Korea can be independent of, you know, the U.N. command, U.S. forces, Korea, that key seems to be shifting. Um, but I would also say that the military industrial complex dictates progress on Korea peace. I mean, I often use this example as, um, I don't mean to be cynical, but it is the truth. And, you know, there were two things that happened the day after the uh, Singapore uh, summit. And that is that the stocks of defense contractors dropped, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin. And what happened the day after the collapse of the Hanoi talks? They went right back up. So, you know, we know that North Korea plays a very convenient boogeyman. Um, 70 years of war, of propaganda, of vilification. You know, Kim Jong-un and North Korea, the North Korean regime, it's just they're such an easy target to vilify and justify more militarization. I mean, with the RIMPAC military exercises, you know, the U.S. led this 26-country effort in the largest maritime uh, exercises, you know, here in Hawaii and, and off the coast of California. And you know, they say this is, there's no enemy. You know, this is just about um, being uh, prepared, preparedness. But if you actually look at some of the exercises, I think that one of the journalists, Abby Martin, was on um, was able to get you know on one of the ships, and they are and they actually did a um, they were able to film one of the practice regime change in a village, and guess whose portraits were in one of the houses of the villages? It was. Kim Il-sung and, and Kim Jong-il. So, you know, it's uh, North Korea is a very convenient target that justifies massive, endless 
military spending in this country. And so given that it is the oldest conflict that the U.S. has never resolved peacefully, it is time to end the Korean War. In as much as South Korea doesn't yet have full operational wartime operational control over its military, do you would you argue that South Korea is a sort of pseudo colony of a of a neo imperialist United States? No, no. I mean it's it's not. But I think many of it has a lot of political constraints. I mean, you know, let's think about what happened um, in the aftermath of the Singapore summit. What was the first thing that happened? Okay, so Trump said, it wasn't in the declaration, but Trump said in the press conference, oh, we're going to stop these war drills or war games. Uh, They're expensive for the U.S. taxpayer and they're just provocative and, you know, they're not leading us anywhere. And so what was the first response back at home in the United States? Congress introduces a resolution. We're going to stop. We're going to cap the number of U.S. troops because they thought that Trump was going to go off the deep end and withdraw troops from the Korean Peninsula. It's just it's too much tied to um, the U.S. political system that depends on perpetual war to maintain its economic military posture. So as much as I want to say it, it is a completely independent country, and it is in many ways, but there are parts of it that are very much constrained by the U.S. political reality. Now, there's so much more that I want to ask you, but I'm aware that you have to go now. So I'd like to uh, to invite both of you on again in a, in a couple of months' time to uh, to keep talking more and to, to tell us the full story about uh, your actual experience in 2015 of, uh, of walking through... Uh, from North Korea to South Korea. Well, Jocko, the good news is that you can see it when um, Crossings is screened in Seoul next or in in October. So um, it's, yeah, I think uh, the filmmaker Diane Borchelin does a a fabulous job capturing uh, all the complexities, the the hardships, the, the insights, the revelations that even the international delegation had while being in North Korea and also being in South Korea. Um, it's a really beautiful, historic piece, and I think really shows the power of activism and, and women's movements. Well, that does sound great. I look forward to seeing that. I, uh, again, I, I feel regretful that we weren't able to get through everything today, but I do invite you to come back on again in a few months. Would you do that? Yes, thanks, Jocko, for the invitation. It's it's great to have you on finally. I know it's something that we've been trying to organize at the last time you were in Seoul unsuccessfully, so I'm glad that you were able to do it now via Zoom. Um, Thank you once again, Christine Ahn and Colin Moore, for coming on the show. Uh, We'll put your uh, your Twitter links and a link to the website as well in the the show notes of this episode. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, that ends it for today. Unfortunately, our guests have to go, but if you have... uh, enjoyed this episode please do come back and check us out again next week if you already have an nk news subscription take a look at our nk pro platform which offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the korean peninsula you can inquire about access and a free trial membership by sending an email to membership at nknews.org today also if you have feedback questions or guest recommendations please send them to podcast at nknews.org our thanks as always go to arias dare and brian betts for facilitating this episode and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius. Thanks very much, and listen again next time. <laughs>